Hi, this is Dr. Mike with Jake Uncleman, and you're listening to the Neuro Noodle Podcast. Welcome to Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring tech legend Jay Gunkelman. He is the man who has read over a half a million brain scans. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The Neuro Noodle Podcast is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. And a special thanks to our gold and silver supporters. Earn up to 16 CEU hours by attending Applied Neuroscience's NeuroGuide Workshop December 10th and 11th in Madeira Beach, Florida. It's led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend, online or in person with the link appliedneuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops. And if you sign up now, you can join Dr. Robert Thatcher at his house for a pre-course get-together December 9th. It's going to be a blast. What a better way to enjoy winter by being in Madeira Beach, Florida and earning up to 16 CEU hours. Sign up now at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash attend hyphen NG hyphen workshops. MindMedia.com. Get the latest EEG and neurofeedback technology from MindMedia.com. Their semi-dry sensor cap is a wonder to see, and their EEG amplifiers have been trusted in the field for decades. Their neurofeedback and QEEG courses will get you up to speed in no time. Visit MindMedia.com now. This is the Jay Gunkelman, the man who has read well over a half a million brain scans. That's what's left of Jay Gunkelman. So, welcome to Tucson City. <laughs> oh, I see the mug. <laughs> you still got it. <laughs> that that coffee's always hot with that mug on it. <laughs> Jay, it's so good to see you. Dr. Mike Pierce, hereby known as Mike, welcome to the Neuro Noodle Podcast. Thank you. You are a chiropractor. You're a neurofeedback tech. You're a neurofeedback practitioner. You're a YouTube genius. What did I miss, Mike? Well, I've been practicing chiropractic neurology for quite a long time now. I've been in practice almost 30 years. And I've been, you know, following various mentors throughout the years. And, and Jay, you are just the most precious one uh, that I can I can speak of. And I can't tell you guys how much you've inspired me to make my YouTube channel, to get the message out there, to explain things to people. Um, you know, the the people just kept asking me, could you could you could you make it simpler? Could you make it easier for uh, for the layperson? Could you make it so I can explain it to my mom? So we just did that. And and my students helped me, and my friends helped me, and my staff helped me. I had lots of interns. And so we just took everything we knew from the practice and everything that we knew from the patients and, and the fa extended families. Because, you know, when someone comes to you with a brain problem, the whole family has a problem. It's not just the person that presents. So, um, so the whole family would say, can you explain it to us? Could you dumb it down for us? Could you make it easier? Could you draw some pictures? And so, you know, I got some great educators helping me. And, and you know, you see the, you see the graphics and, and the production value on the show. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I have to say, your graphics are much better than my bad art. <laughs> and anybody who knows knows that Jay draws art whenever he teaches, and it's really cool because it shows the point. But he does describe some bad art sometimes. 
well, <laughs> I have to say my my hand eye coordination isn't uh, perfect, you know. So my uh, my my graphics are crude at best. So plenty good. People love the screen shares. And by the way, it's turned on if anybody wants to have a poke. So, so Mike, you started off as a chiropractor. How'd you get into neurofeedback? What was the process there? Well, um, I was a chiropractor and still am, but, and, I, and I, I, I uh, had a friend who got in a terrible car accident, and uh, he was in a coma. And we all went to the hospital to visit him, and I was a doctor, and I was looking at my friend in a coma, and I said, I don't know anything about this. How, how is that possible? Yeah. And all of us were there. I mean, there were hundreds of us that came in and out throughout the, the course of a month or more. And, um, and, and they were doing things to him. Some were giving him smelling salts and, and, and patchouli, and some were adjusting him, and some were, were touching his feet and messing with the Babinski reflex and watching all the toes do things, and, and then his feet would sweat and, and turn puffy red. And I was thinking to myself, damn, this is not good. This can't be good for him. And I realized I didn't know what to do to help him, and I didn't know what to do to tell people to leave him alone. And, um, and, and, and so later on, you know, I, I was exposed to the diplomate program in, in neurology and the chiropractic profession through the American Chiropractic Association. I took it, and I began to study neurology. And from there, I, I had always worked with psychologists and, and counselors that used neurofeedback and QEG. And so that kind of really dovetailed my interest in neurology, my interest in psychology. And then I started just taking on difficult patients, and, and, and there are people that were non-responders to, um, to neurofeedback, just like there are to chiropractic non-responders and second opinions, and so I would scratch my head with everybody else and try to figure it out with my interns up at Northwestern um, Health Sciences University in Minneapolis. And then I taught for the Care Institute, and I taught for industry, I taught for supplement companies, but really the, the short story is I just tried to solve problems, and we all tried to put our heads together. So, so Mike, when a mom and dad call you up and say, uh, my uh, little Johnny needs help, how do you describe neurofeedback to the moms and dads and the brain scan and all that? Well, I, I try to make it really simple, and I try to say we're not do, using drugs or surgery, or in this case, even electrical current going into you. All we're trying to do is teach you to respond to something that you don't normally know is going on. you got brain waves coming out of your head all the time. So we're going to pick them up, we're going to show them to you, and we're going to give you some signal that says, this is what we want, and this is what we don't want. And you'll learn, just like a, a dog or an animal or, a, or a, a, an infant or even a person that doesn't speak English, you just give them something, and the, the dopamine reward system just says, hey, something's better than nothing. So if there's a sound flashing or, 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 a, or a, a visual, visual um, image flashing versus nothing, they get that. There's also the negative feedback side sometimes when we show movies and when we show different signals and the movie slows down or turns black or, or, or reduces, that's, that, that kind of feedback also helps. But they don't have to know that right away. We just tell them, look, we're training you to, to, to use a machine to tell you when it's happening and when it's not happening. And, and your body will naturally learn. You don't have to work at it. You can just sit there, and it'll automatically happen. And they love that, especially my type A personalities. They're just, how can I make it faster? <laughs> how, how do you, okay, if they're going through the training, that means you're training against something, a bar, right, a threshold. Yeah. How do you explain the database that you're comparing the waves of, the, of Johnny to what you're trying to train it to? Well, sometimes I don't use a database, and sometimes I do. Um, it all depends. Um, I, I definitely have learned from Jay that databases can be very problematic, and so I, I have um, I have really, you know, over the years done a lot of both, and, and it depends what I'm doing. Because I do different kinds of neurofeedback, and I do different therapies. I don't just do neurofeedback. I do a lot of nutrition and a lot of lab testing and a lot of detoxification. 
and a lot of neurology, a lot of rehab, a lot of diagnosis, a lot of examination, a lot of eye movements. So but getting back to neurofeedback, when we do neurofeedback, I try to tell them, you know, whether we're, whether we're, our goal is to get toward a normal that is a, a group normal or a herd normal, and sometimes that's good, and, and it can be useful, and other times that's not our goal, and I'll tell them that's not our goal. We're, we're aiming for this thing. And, and usually it's part of the informed consent is I try to explain to them before, before they even agree to it. I say, look, you know, I, I think this might be a direction to go. What do you think? And we'll discuss it, and we'll talk about what our goal is, and maybe we should make this more over here, make this less over here. What do you think about that? And then the patient, if they're smart, will say, well, um, what will happen if we're doing it right? What will happen if we're doing it wrong? And I'll tell them, i got a plan for those, too, because I ought to. And I always tell my students, you better have a plan for when things go wrong, because they will. <laughs> they will. <laughs> you, you try to get people out of comas. From what I've heard from Jay, that's not a fun business to be in. Could you no. get into that a little bit? Yeah, I, I took the coma training in Europe and um, in the United States and, and, um, and began to become a leader of, of coma teams in Minneapolis, and I worked on uh, several different coma teams. And we are not always successful. Patients do die. We lose them. Um, we don't kill them, but they do die. Um, it's serious business. It's not what the average chiropractor does. Um, I led a team of interns and doctors in Minneapolis, and, um, and I've had lots of failures. You don't, you don't do serious work and not fail. And I think it's really important for people to understand that I make mistakes every day, but it's because I dare to make a hypothesis about what is wrong with the patient. And I, make, like, I might make eight or nine hypotheses about one patient, and I'll find that two or three of them are wrong. But the process of being a clinician is to test those hypotheses and say, ah, that's wrong. But it takes several weeks or months to figure out that it's wrong because you use a clinical trial to figure out that it's wrong. And that's what clinicians are supposed to do. Now, researchers don't like that. They go, they go nuts because they say, oh, it's unsafe and it's dangerous and it doesn't give you the truth. And I say, yes, yes, yes. But I have an ethical obligation as a clinician to really pay attention to trying to get the patient better and make a hypothesis about what is wrong with them because we don't know everything. Now, the difference between Jay did and what you're doing, Mike, I think, Jay, you, you worked with veterans who got pretty pissed at you when you brought them out. And I don't, I don't yeah. know. We, we woke up 27 out of 33 um, uh, who had been in a coma over a year with a Glasgow coma scale uh, less than eight, which basically means there's been no reaction to anything, uh, pain, sound, whatever. They're, they're just not responsive at all. And that, that's what a layperson might consider a full coma as opposed to like... Um, locked in that some people know what locked in syndrome is or um, a, a kind of a light coma where they respond to touch or something these people are just a slab of people they're they're, they're just they're they're not there and um, uh, 27 were brought out the process was a brutal process we don't tickle your feet with feathers and whisper in your ear wake up you know that doesn't work Somebody else already tried that kind of stuff, you know, and um, and, and were unsuccessful. So uh, um, uh, Kessler Hospital in, in New Jersey would allow uh, the, the study. Uh, it, it was difficult uh, to get um, the IRB approval because in, what's informed consent when the patient's in a coma? And if you ask the family, sign here and I'll wake up your grandma, I mean, that's you know, coerce, coercive consent, and that's not real consent. And if you go ahead and, and assume, okay, 
if if uh, if your you know second cousin says okay, uh, then now it's okay um, and it's ethical. Uh, yeah, you're deluding yourself. But let let's let's say you you think it's it's a fine thing to do. Well, when you wake up 27 people and a third of them are really quite upset with the process having been brought back. Um, they're not happy to be back. Most of them don't really remember the the process of coming back. Uh, you know, that they're, they're treated with medication uh, for a few weeks to excite excitatory chemistry and extinguish inhibitory chemistry so that if the nervous system gets an input, it's going to have a big reaction. And then we strap stimulators on the hands and feet and turn them up to a point of ridiculous level of stimulation. You know, a, a, a median nerve stimulator, you get a little twitch in the thumb. That That's a good response. If you turn it up too much, you might get the hand to twitch a little bit. If you turn it way up, you get the whole arm jerking. Well, both feet, both arms are jerking around. It looks like the person's having a convulsion on the table uh, with the stimulation. If you look, you get a 40% increase in brain metabolism from all of that, which is kind of what the reason to do it is. You're trying to stimulate the brain into being active. And, and uh, most of them woke up during that. There were some that woke up with a C2 stimulation, which is C2 is basically the top of the spine at the back of the neck. And uh, that the, the C2, C2 stimulation goes directly into the brain kind of like having a cattle prod stuck into your brainstem. And these are uh, um, aggressive uh, attempts at waking people up. Uh, when they come to, uh, they're usually vocal, uh, not yelling thank you, uh, but uh, more like F you, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and yes, swearing and screaming and but they don't really remember that very much. That's all cloudy and, and kind of fades out of their conscious awareness uh, after they're back back. But the ones that are back and solidly back, uh, you know, if you could predict which ones were going to be upset, it would be an easy thing. Oh, yeah, he's missing both arms and, you know, he's not going to be a happy camper if he comes back. Well, people with really severe physical problems like that were just as happy as a lark to be back. So you can't look at him and go, oh, well, yeah, you know, he's a real mess. I, I, I don't know if we can bring him back and have him happy because being a real mess didn't predict unhappiness. Um, uh, one fellow had lost IQ points and he was normal. It wasn't like he was a stupid person in, in the state that he came back in. He was conversational you know, as a relatively normal level of intelligence. But he had been awfully sharp. And uh, the the loss of his, I guess, sense of self of being the, the bright guy, uh, somehow that was more than he could take. And uh, he, he attempted uh, to, to do himself in repeatedly. So, you know, I, I can do other things. We just showed that it was possible, that the, the technical possibility, the feasibility of, of coma recovery um, and you know it's entirely feasible uh, it's relatively effective um, uh, and in fact it, it, in one circumstance um, not in that study but in one circumstance there was a 
the use of the technique, not waiting for a year and getting an IRB approval and all of that. But uh, if you remember, there was a mine that collapsed and all the miners kind of sequestered themselves in a little, they taped off an area, you know, tried to keep all the, the good air in and, and they, they made it quite a long time. There were a lot of them in there, but when they finally got to him, there was only one person left alive and he was in a coma. Uh, they scooped him up, ran him to the little local hospital, um, Sega Mine, uh, the Sega Mine group brought in this group from New Jersey. They woke this guy up in a day. And, well, he he wasn't as far gone. I mean, he, he, there were still some uh, uh, you know, crude reactions and things still there. I mean, uh, he, he was more present than the people that had a Glasgow Coma Scale less than eight for over a year. So uh, he, he popped back. And, you know, he was conversational. You could tell he was a little, I don't know, it wasn't just shell shock of having, having been back. He, he, he was a little uh, uh, stunned uh, uh, sort of in his presentations. So, um, yeah, it, I, I, I think going over and coming back is quite the experience. So uh, being a bit stunned, I can understand myself having been over and back a few times. So um, uh, the, the, the first few, you're a bit like a, a deer in the headlights when you come back. So, Mike, what, what's your take? What What is a coma? And then do I need to fill out paperwork at, you know, beforehand to say if I'm missing two arms, don't take me out of it or bring me back out? Is there, I'm, I'm serious, is there, what, do not, is that part of the do not resuscitate? Yeah, it can be part of those those orders. Um, <clears throat> you can make them official. You can put them. You, you can put them in there. In fact, I've been named by a few people to be contacted if somebody gets into one, and I I don't love that. But oh, there you go. There you go. Take a look. The physician order for life sustaining technology POLST EMT DNR. Uh, with that form, uh, if you go down in public, and you happen to have a little warning device uh, on you, a medic alert, or they go to your wallet, or if you have a tattoo that says EMT DNR, uh, that, that they'll look. Uh, they have to, to actually see the document. Because, you know, you could get a tattoo and then change your mind, and yeah, that tattoo is still there. You know? So um, they, they want to see a current form, basically. But it, it means that they can't, they can't resuscitate you. Uh, if you go down in public, They'll pump you back up and stick things in you, and by the time you're in the hospital, you're on the slippery slope already. Uh, uh, they, you know, they've, they've got you back breathing again, and and you know they're they're trying to uh, keep you alive, and it's against your will. You wanted to be left to uh, nature's course, and you know I have a PLC MT DNR myself. I've got so much wrong with me. For God's sakes, if I go down. <laughs> What, what the hell are you trying to save? <laughs> Earn up to 16 CEU hours by attending Applied Neurosciences NeuroGuide Workshop December 10th and 11th in Madeira Beach, Florida. It's led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend, online or in person with the link AppliedNeuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops and if you sign up now 
you can join Dr. Robert Thatcher at his house for a pre-course get-together December 9th. It's going to be a blast. What a better way to enjoy winter by being in Madeira Beach, Florida and earning up to 16 CEU hours. Sign up now at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops. One more piece missing and there won't be anything here to save. So, so you, carry a, you carry a bottle of champagne with you in case that happens. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm fine with either way. I, I'm happy to be here. I'm not like looking to duck out and, you know, uh, disappear or something. But um, at the same time, uh, I, I, I've been over and back enough times to not worry about it. And, and you know, I, again, I've, I've got a lot wrong with me. I mean, uh, the brain tumor, when we found that, I called the doctor uh, who had told me one more thing wrong with you, be a monster, and uh, uh, told him about the brain tumor. He said, I don't, geez, gee, I don't know what to say. I said, yeah, you do, Mike. Call me a monster. Oh, don't you remember? <laughs> so, uh, gee, you, uh, well, you, you know. Been, you've been wrong for 20 years, man. You got another 20. Who are you kidding? It's, uh, actually, it's been 30 years since the brain surgery, and they give you 10 as your 50% survival, and, and it's an accurate estimate, actually. There, there are some things where their estimate is an old estimate based on old therapies. Uh, lung cancer, for instance, the, the, the average is 10 months from the date of diagnosis for stage four. And nowadays, you, you can get multiple years um, with some of the current treatments. So, uh, the, you know, you, you got to have an accurate current estimate. Well, with no pituitary, that 10 years is an accurate estimate on the average. If you're a female, it's that's an overestimate. Uh, you, uh, the, the women have a lot uh, shorter uh, um, probability. Uh, it, it's very brief. Uh, apparently, their hormonal systems are a lot more difficult to uh, you know, imagine that, you know. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> You know, if you're studying in biology, you think the Krebs cycle is difficult. Uh, go, go ahead and, and and try to figure out the the the, the female uh, reproductive systems uh, feedback cycles. And holy moly, you know, uh, it, it's a it's a miracle that anything ever gets born. You know, so yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, so Mike, you're I believe you're the first chiropractor. I know you do other things, but technically you're you are also a chiropractor. Yeah. And this is mental health. What are the things that you do as a chiropractor to let's say relieve stress or clients come to you? How can a chiropractor help? Well, really, um, uh, we we have always kind of existed as as a last resort, and and unfortunately, some of us have made claims that are not substantiated, but. But that doesn't eliminate the fact that there are outliers. There are cases where somebody has something wrong with them. You go through all the standard treatments, and they don't work, or they work marginally. And then, uh, or there's an objection to the to the therapy. The, the patient says, "I don't want the toxicity, or I don't want the side effects, so I'm not going to do it, or I'm going to limit the dose." And then somebody comes along and adjusts them, like the first chiropractic patient, Harvey Lillard. Yeah, he's a guy who was bent over in a staircase, and and he was lifting a toolbox, and he felt a pop in his back. And he, and he was mostly deaf after that. And then, um, you know, Daniel David Palmer, who was a magnetic healer at the time, 
said, well, you know, let me check you out. So he put him on a bench and checked him out and found a, a vertebra. We think it was an upper thoracic vertebra out of position. It could have been the atlas. We don't know. And he, and he, he had him face down, and he, he pushed that, that bone back into position, he thought. And there's a lot of problems with that, that idea, but, but he did it, and it worked. And we don't fully know why, but we have a lot of theories, and, and the theories have some really good physiology behind them. And they mostly involve the autonomic nervous system, which is at the core of the coma recovery program that I did too. The whole idea of, of autonomic um, coverage of watersheds, which Jay talks about quite a bit, there's, a, there's, um, there's not only the nerve cells that fire in a given area of your brain, but there's the watershed of the blood flow that supplies and drains that area. And that's a, that's a system that's integrated but different. And, um, and it has uh, its own rules, and it's different from patient to patient. There's, there's biochemical and genetic and anatomic individuality. So to answer your question, what we do in chiropractic is we try to figure out all the other stuff that could be done uh, with regard to affecting the brain. So that means adjustments. That means, uh, you know, in the old days it was heliotherapy, sun, go sit in the sun. It was food and diet changes. It was exercise. It was, um, it was all manner and form of chiropractic adjustments from the top-down atlas ones to craniosacral to the lumbar and, and, and sacral ones, like the Logan Basic Method, which was um, made famous in, in the, the Logan, uh, Logan Method, uh, the Thompson Drop Methods, the Activator Methods, all these different methods were used. We also did supplements and, and diets. We did um, uh, keto, we were some of the first to do ketogenic diets, because that's been around for hundreds of years, I mean thousands of years. The ketogenic diet's been described throughout, throughout history uh, using more fats and, and less carbs <coughs> for seizure disorders. Um, we've also uh, used things like um, brain exercises. Uh, the, the functional neurology uh, profession really looks at brain exercises that target a specific area of the brain, like um, you know all kinds of things. It could be um, it could be stroking the face with a soft brush, a makeup brush for on, on one side of the face and one particular nerve for an autistic child, and it calms them right down in some cases, not all, because each person is unique and different. And you look for evidence of what's happening in the evoked potentials that you're doing to a person because every time you touch a person you're eliciting an evoked potential even if you're not measuring it with an ERP you're 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 eliciting an evoked potential whenever you touch somebody even whenever you talk to somebody you're eliciting an evoked potential and so we might do eye movements we might do um we might do tongue exercises we might do gargling we might do um uh clicks in one ear or another ear we might do really interesting hemifield stimulation where we might stimulate the the temporal lobe on the opposite side with large flashing checkers or small flashing checkers to activate the parvocellular or the magnocellular portions of maybe the what or the where system, depending on whether we're using the dorsal or the ventral visual stream or, or, or auditory processing. There's a whole bunch of stuff we can do, and we do that based on science and physical examination. Now, we don't have a ton of validation to say that this exercise fixes this disease and this diagnosis and this ICD-10 code, and I'm sorry. But you know what? When your mother is sick and you call somebody like me, you want somebody that uses science, and that's us. Let's talk food, because you're 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 a food guy. You oh, know about God. food. I know about food too, cheeseburger <laughs> and French fries. But let's talk about sure. marketing and food. And I got to see if the wife is around. But is there really such thing as gluten allergies? Or well, is, that, is. Or is that an anxiety that turns into glutens? Is that, has that always been around? Like, well, talk to me. Let's start with glutens. There are several layers of gluten to unpack. And the first one is, um, you know, experts like Bond and Shiva will describe uh, how there are different breeds and different, different hybrids of different grains that have not been the same. 
and in the past some of them were much healthier than the ones that we've grown today. So the different kinds of grains and the different kinds of genetically modified organisms and the different kinds of, 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 of um, life that have been created are, are also differently antigenic. So that's one thing, which is, what is wheat? Which wheat are you talking about? Um, which dairy are you talking about? Which corn are you talking about? So that's the first one. The second one is the layers of the immune system and the brain sensitivity. And I think the most sensitive would be the celiac disease. And we were taught in school that celiac disease is, you know, that stabbing pain you get in your gut as soon as you eat wheat, and it's a, it's a hallmark for celiac. But most people don't have that. Now, the gold standard for that is to do a biopsy of the, of the, of the intestine and to say, hey, there's, a, there's actually celiac disease here. But about 98%, 99% accurate is the antibody test. So we do an antibody test, and we look for you know, antibodies to um, 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 uh, alpha-gliadin and, and transglutaminase. And if, those are, if one of those are positive, we tell you you've probably got, got celiac disease. Now, there's a couple of genetic tests that will allow us to test HLA-B2 uh, and 8, uh, HLA-DQ2 and 8, which are genes that determine whether your problem is more brain or more small intestine, because there's brain celiac and there's gut celiac. You can have that. You can have the gene for it and not, and not the antibody, because the antibody hasn't turned on yet in your child, and later on it turns on after exposure or stress or a combination of the two, and maybe you have the gene, but it never turns on. And so that would be um, uh, you know, a different kind of celiac, but, but still a genetic and antibody-based. And then there's sensitivities that are not so much celiac disease as just sensitivities to IgG and IgA antibodies and IgM antibodies. Um, not so much an allergy, which is IgE antibodies. And so those are called sensitivities. So you've got allergy sensitivity, celiac disease, the genetic component, and then you've even got the lectins. There's a lectin component to gluten and, and, and wheat, which is not exactly an antibody reaction because you don't require antibodies for gluten, uh, for, for uh, lectins which are little proteins. Lectin means to choose. It's, it's a hook. And, and this protein hooks onto your intestinal lining and attaches to it. And it causes mucus. It causes inflammation. It causes acid formation uh, release nearby the cell. The cell thinks it's under attack because something latched onto it, like a, like a submarine. You know, if something clanks onto a submarine, it thinks it's a mine. Uh, likewise, if a cell of your intestine gets clanked onto by something, it thinks, oh, a bacteria must have in infected me, or a worm, or some kind of parasite. So, so that, that lectin, there's something called wheat germaglutinin, WGA, and wheat germaglutinin doesn't require any antibodies to trigger a response. And it, it actually messes with the insulin receptor and causes insulin resistance. So you can, you can gain weight, you can become diabetic, you can become pre-diabetic, all without any antibody tests being positive. So you would be antibody negative, and you would walk around saying, I had my food antibody testing, and I don't have any, and I'm fine, and you had a... You had a I wouldn't even call it a false negative because it was a lectin you were looking for. And lectins don't require antibodies. So there's several layers of what can happen with gluten. It's a great question you've asked, Pete. Our, our food supply is also not um, a historic uh, uh, food supply. You think oats. Well, oats, they've been around forever. I mean, what, what the hell can be wrong with oats? Well, in the harvesting of oats, you want oats to be dry and essentially dead uh, as a plant. The, the, the green growing part needs to be dead. So they spray the entire field with Roundup, uh, which is banned in Europe and, uh, um, and you know, problematic at, at best. I mean, it, 
it, it's it's an awful uh, circumstance to be exposed to Roundup, um, and and you know there's lawsuits and all of that going on, but if you look into the news over the last few years, um, you know your uh, your uh, yeah, uh, little round uh, oats that you eat in the morning, you know the the oatmeal and things such as that that you eat. They've been testing it. Then the Roundup is still in it. So there are people that have GI reactions, not necessarily just to the gluten-related uh, 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 grains, but to what's on them. And uh, um, um, my, my mother was fine with all wheats and all of that all of her life until she was you know, like 80-something years old. And at, at that point, uh, she started to react really quite badly to anything uh, oatmeal. And uh, um, I, I suggested that they uh, basically try a cream of wheat instead of oatmeal because they, they don't kill off the wheat the same way uh, before they harvest it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, she, she had a dietary uh, a replacement that was okay to her and it helped. But you, you've got to be aware that um, it, it, uh, gluten sensitivity may not be necessarily just to the to the to the uh, to, to the, to the the actual seeds, uh, but to what's on them. Yeah. And uh, it's unfortunate that uh, you know chemistry is uh, not being controlled more uh, accurately. You know. Uh, uh, Bear bought out um, uh, the Roundup, and they replaced it with a Roundup equivalent that's equally toxic. So, you know, but you're, you know, oh, we won't use this toxic one. We'll use this toxic one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, the, the unsaid statement, you know, and if, uh, the, the, there are ways to end up killing off green material that you want to kill off uh, using clove oil and um, and, and, a, and, and a, a soap mix. Um, the soap basically is a surfactant to get it into the plant and the clove oil is enough to kill off the plant. And and there's, there's nothing, quote, toxic uh, uh, to the extent that Roundup or any of its modern-day equivalents are. Um, uh, but it it's hard to get a governmental entity that's spraying all the roads in your town to, to knock down the median's uh, growth uh, with with uh, uh, something other than uh, historic commercial uh, product. And uh, there, there are places still spraying uh, things that shouldn't be sprayed. So it's unfortunate. Yeah, Jay. Um... Stephanie Seneff wrote a book called Toxic Legacy about that, and it's absolutely true. I test people for glyphosate in urine with Great Plains Laboratory and um, in right here in, in the U.S. in Kansas City. And um, you're, you're so right. It's, it's the toxic legacy that we're exposed to is, is horrible. I, 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 you know, I, I followed your career and, and, and some of your, your exploits in, in environment, and I wanted to ask you, you know, how did you, how did you get from all of your environmental science interests and toxicology interests into EEG, or which came first, and how did you how did you do that? Because you have done so much with the world of 
of environmentalism and toxicology and, and standing up to the man. How did that all happen as you as you grew up and, and as you formed your, your early career? <laughs> um, uh, I, I've always been easily distracted by other topics. <laughs> <laughs> and if I'm interested in something, I've got to drill down on it. And um, environmental matters have interested me um, because they've affected me. Uh, uh, you know, the, the little town I lived in, Crockett, California, uh, had a refinery uh, about six minutes at a 10-mile-an-hour wind um, uh, upwind from us. So we were downwinders, uh, and we received 250-something tons of a toxic substance called catacarb, which is a catalyst used in refining. And it, they dumped that for 16 days and didn't tell anyone. And most of the people in the town were sick. Now, when you live in a town of 3,200 people and most of the people get sick, it's hard to miss that. You know, and there, there were a few hundred that were extremely ill. Um, uh, we negotiated a settlement with the refinery and they put an environmental specialist medical clinic in the town to help people. And uh, uh, they, they, they spotted my rash on my arm and actually uh, uh, did a blood test and told me about my brain tumor. Uh, that I owe my life to that toxic waste. But they still pissed me off because they toxified my town and my neighbors. So... I had to figure out a way for us to know they were dumping stuff when they didn't want to tell anyone. So how do you do that? You know, so I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of crazy. And I thought, well, let's surround the refinery with laser beams. And if the chemical breaks the laser beam, we'll get the chemical fingerprint of the chemical. Now you have to have an infrared and, a, and an ultraviolet beam because one picks up stink and one picks up toxic. And you got to pick up toxic because it's toxic. And people are going to complain about the stink, so you got to pick up that too. And so with a couple of lasers uh, on, on the upwind and a couple on the downwind side, and um, we invented the, the first refinery-based laser um, pollution detection system in the world. And that was about 30 years ago and now for the first 25 years everybody said well you're crazy <laughs> and i said that aside what about these lasers you know um and uh, it, it turns out that about uh six years ago or so um they, they convened a panel of experts from uh, uh ucla uh uh, California environmental groups, uh, 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 all, all the advisors that they could get together. What's the best way to monitor refineries? Because refineries have had some problems. You know, if you got a refinery, it'll be a problem eventually. Uh, it's, it's inherent to the very dangerous uh, uh, industry. And if air is human and somebody's going to make a mistake and something's going to go bad at some point. And when it goes bad in a refinery, it can go really bad. So, uh, uh, um, uh, they they got advice, and the advice from the uh, group was basically what we made 30 years ago. Now, six years ago, they said, now now that's state of the art. Um, well, okay. Uh, uh, suddenly, I wasn't quite the fool. 
Um, but at first they said, why are you using physics to detect chemistry? You know, we could build a little shed on the fence line of the refinery with a pump that sucks air through a little hole on the wall and run through a little gas detector and tell us if there's something being released. Yeah, but it's got to hit this little hole. I've got a kilometer long beam uh, and all it has to do is break the beam. You know, and if you've got a beam of clean air that you've shot and you know the spectra of the clean air, you subtract that spectra from this other spectra. Geez, it sounds a little like EEG. You're dealing with spectral comparisons and normative databases and uh, you know, R squared uh, uh, comparisons. I mean, it, it, it's all the same kind of stuff with a different frequency band. And uh, so I, I basically uh, uh, ended up having the world's first built in the local refinery, and now they're mandated in every refinery in California. So, uh, but I put the design in public domain, so there's nobody that can patent the design. Uh, 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 the, thus, the uh, it, it can be adopted without having to pay some idiot the gigantic royalty. The NeuroNoodle podcast is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. A special thanks to our gold and silver supporters. Earn up to 16 CEU hours by attending Applied Neuroscience's NeuroGuide Workshop December 10th and 11th in Madeira Beach, Florida. It's led by none other than Dr. Robert Thatcher himself. There are two ways you can attend online or in person with the link appliedneuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops. And if you sign up now, you can join Dr. Robert Thatcher at his house for a pre-course get-together December 9th. It's going to be a blast. What a better way to enjoy winter by being in Madeira Beach, Florida and earning up to 16 CEU hours. Sign up now at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash attend hyphen ng hyphen workshops. MindMedia.com. Get the latest EEG and neurofeedback technology from MindMedia.com. Their semi-dry sensor cap is a wonder to see, and their EEG amplifiers have been trusted in the field for decades. Their neurofeedback and QEEG courses will get you up to speed in no time Visit mindmedia.com now.